0: Laws passed by non-industry-savvy politicians are a pain in the, well, you-know-where. But the regulations that implement those laws can be a nightmare. How can you wake up from that bad dream and help your clients? We'll find out on this episode of Shift Shapers.
1: Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change you want to see. This episode is brought to you by Shift Shaper Strategies. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. Clarify your message so you win more clients, crush your sales goals, and build your practice. Learn more at Strategies.com. And now, here's your host, StoryBrand Certified Guide and Chief Transformation Strategist at Shift Shaper Strategies, David Saltzman.
0: You know, I've said this for years. Congress can pass all the laws they want. It's almost never the laws that get us, as practitioners, that get us into trouble. The thing that's the pain in our universe is the regulations. And because the regulations are voluminous, oftentimes they're confusing. You know, a law, if you're a fairly good reader, you can make your way through. But the regulations are just dense and difficult and whatnot. And so from time to time, or for some of us all the time, we need professional help to decipher those and help us understand what's going on and to keep our clients on the straight and narrow. And so we asked Sarah Borders, co-founder and principal consultant at Benefits Compliance Solutions, To join us because this is all she does and she can explain to us kind of some of the stuff that she's seeing a lot of and some things I know that have changed since COVID and since we've been, you know, making our way through this universe. So with that, welcome, Sarah.
2: Thank you, David. Glad to be here.
0: Let's start with a little bit of your background because, you know, you've got some definite bona fide that have gotten you to kind of where you are. So spend a moment or two, if you will, and tell us about that.
2: Sure. So I started out in the employee benefits industry in 2006 working for an insurance broker in Corpus Christi, Texas. And so I was an account manager and then account executive for many years until I made the switch because mainly of the Affordable Care Act over to compliance. I was working for NFP as vice president of benefits compliance, and then I decided to go out on my own and assist brokers and their employer clients to make sure that they are in compliance and understanding their obligations as it relates to operating a health plan. So it's exciting.
0: And that's a lot. It's exciting, but it's also for those of us who are client-facing, because you've been there, for those of us who are client-facing, it's maddening because clients look to you to give them advice. And the last thing you want to do is give them bad advice or incorrect advice, but every time you open your mouth, you're looking at a possibility of an E&O problem not to mention annoying and or maybe even losing a client. So you want to be sure that you're on the right frequency when you're discussing all of these regs with folks. Now, you and I talked offline, and I, I know one of the biggest problem areas that you identified is COBRA. Why is that still a big... All these years later, we've had COBRA like forever. All of a sudden, it's becoming a bigger problem area. Why is that?
2: I think it's primarily because COBRA is so complex and... A lot of the times when we use vendors or service providers to help us comply with the requirement, we might think that we have no obligations any longer, that we've sort of indemnified ourselves. And because of that, I believe the oversight in COBRA or the knowledge that an employer should probably have, at least basic knowledge, isn't there because they aren't thinking about it. And we know that people actually use COBRA because... They need it to pay their claims. Usually they're going to take it and pay for COBRA when they need it and they have large claims and some sort of medical condition they need to have covered. So because of that, I believe that there are a lot of gaps, but also opportunities to make sure that employers are complying with COBRA. In addition, we have the ARPA COBRA subsidies and also the outbreak period rules because of COVID-19 that add just many, many layers of complexity and add to the list of to-dos for employers. So that's why I think COBRA is such a big problem at this
0: point. Yeah, I mean, for me, we've already now termed this what I call Amigo, M-E-G-O, conversation. It stands for My Eyes Glaze Over. There's so many complexities. So if there are holes and there are opportunities in COBRA, let's talk about that. What are the holes that you see and what are the opportunities therein?
2: So the main thing I see with COBRA is the notices not being sent out in the right manner at, or at the correct times. So, for example, we have this thing called the initial notice or general notice. And this document typically isn't sent at all or it's put in an enrollment guide. And while that's not the worst thing ever, it actually needs to be given to the employee and their enrolled spouse upon enrollment in the plan. So we don't want to give somebody COBRA rights that they don't have before they've enrolled in the plan. And so the easiest way to fix this is to get with your COBRA vendor or service provider and just ask them, can you mail this notice to the employee and the enrolled spouse? And typically they will. You just have to be able to notify them that somebody has started employment and they've just enrolled in the plan. So it's a very simple fix that can keep an employer out of trouble because it all ties back to the notices, meaning the COBRA requirements all tie back to, did this employee get notified in the proper manner and at the right time? So that's just a small tidbit that you can do right away to mitigate some of that risk.
0: What else have you found in COBRA where benefits advisors frequently kind of have a hole in their knowledge?
2: I think when it comes to what actually triggers COBRA in the first place, I think we all get that termination of employment triggers COBRA, but there are other triggering events such as death, divorce, child aging off the plan, also a reduction in hours. But when you have one of these triggering events, you also have to have a loss of coverage. And so I think sometimes employees or former employees get left out of COBRA because there isn't enough oversight and did this person actually trigger COBRA or should we have been offering them COBRA? And sometimes they can fall through the cracks and it's not discovered until six months later or even a year or two later.
0: Have there been any any changes around COBRA for COVID?
2: Yes, there was a significant change related directly to COVID, which was the outbreak period rules. And this effectively paused the normal COBRA timelines that are in place. So for example, when an individual triggers COBRA, they have one of those qualifying events and they have a loss of coverage, then the plan is supposed to notify them that they have rights to elect COBRA. Now, under these outbreak period rules, that 60 days that the employee or former employee has to actually elect COBRA have to be paused for up to a year or when the outbreak period ends. And that is based on when the president declares an end to the national emergency period. And so this is done on an employee by employee basis. In other words, you have to look at the individual and when did this COBRA notification apply? And it has to be paused, suspended, frozen for up to a year based on when that employee first had that timeline applied to them in the first place.
0: So all of the systems that HR folks may have in place either need to be amended or they need to just consciously go off on spreadsheet until all of this ends and until the president says, okay, we're all clear. It makes it difficult, doesn't it?
2: It does. It makes it really difficult to administer this and to keep up with the timelines because they apply differently to each person based on when they first triggered it. So yes.
0: So let's move into another fun area in compliance and, and let's talk about ACA. What are the biggest problems that you see with ACA? Is it just all the notice stuff still, or are there more minute problems, more more granular problems that you're seeing?
2: The biggest issue I see with ACA is misclassification of employees. So, for example, classifying an employee who is actually a full-time employee within the meaning of the Affordable Care Act as a temporary employee or an intern or seasonal worker when they don't actually meet the definition. And so what can happen is you determine based on your own classification, your own definition of an employee's status, they are not eligible for benefits, you know, listed in your handbook or enrollment guide when they actually should have been offered benefits Because they are working full time hours. There's very specific definitions about who a full time employee is and who can be placed in a look back measurement period. And so, as a result of that, when you go to do your ACA reporting, you could have a situation where somebody goes to the exchange, receives a premium tax credit from the government, and that is what will trigger one of those lovely letters from the IRS that you owe this very large penalty in some cases. And this could happen. Two, three years later, after the fact, after maybe you've changed HRAS systems or payroll vendors, you've had turnover in HR, or there's a different controller or CFO. And so you're having to go back and dig through information to try to prove that this employee should or should not have been offered
1: coverage
2: so that you're not winding up having to pay an assessment or penalty assessment.
1: And now a word from our sponsor. It's a fact. Salespeople and organizations lose opportunities because they don't clearly communicate their value. In today's market, your story is your message. It should be crystal clear, perfectly arranged, and precisely targeted to attract the clients you want. As a certified story brand guide, we use the exclusive SB7 process to create that story and the websites and collateral that deliver it. If your message isn't cutting through the noise, we can help. Visit us at shiftshapersstrategies.com to learn how we can help you find, clarify, and deliver a message that wins clients, crushes sales goals, and builds your practice. In sales, if you confuse, you lose. So learn more and schedule that call today at shiftshapersstrategies.com. That's shiftshapersstrategies.com. And now, back to our discussion.
0: How many employers are actually paying those assessments versus being able to do some kind of a workout or a refiling? Are the regulatory authorities still kind of open to letting employers refile and correct the record?
2: Yes. So, so far we've seen a little bit of leniency related to late filings or incorrect filings or even just penalty letters for premium tax credits. However, it takes hours and hours of work to demonstrate to go back and have to prove that this employee shouldn't have been offered coverage in the first place or was and waived it. Also, if you never filed, that's even a separate penalty. If you never filed or you filed late, you have to spend the time and the hours and the energy and even paying somebody to help you to be able to, again, prove to the IRS that you did or did not comply. So that can be a a very expensive endeavor.
0: Is Sherm doing a good job or other organizations of educating HR folks so that they're fully aware of this or, or is this more falling on the CFO level folks in in most companies?
2: I would say that Sherm and some of these other organizations do a fair job of warning employers but I do think that the problem just like cobra exists where they are too reliant on their vendors they're not taking a look at it. They're not really understanding how it works and how it all ties back to the premium tax credit. And so things can fall through the cracks once again. So it really is falling a lot on the insurance broker. I think they expect that the insurance broker is going to tell them rather than sherm or rather than their CPA or some other, you know, type of advisor.
0: Have there been any COVID-related changes on ACA?
2: There have not. There have not been any extensions. There has been no leniency. They extended the good faith effort for errors, not for noncompliance, but just errors and kind of small issues related with filing. But no, there have been no changes to the ACA for COVID.
0: Let's move along to another area that I know is troublesome to some people because maybe because it passed a long time ago and folks don't think about it as much as they should or it's not top of mind. And that's HIPAA, which, you know, as I used to tell clients, stands for helping irritate practically all Americans. Is that still a challenge both on the privacy side and on the EDI side?
2: Absolutely. This is probably one of the main issues that no one even knows that they have. <laughs> so just as a reminder, HIPAA, so privacy and security, and the administrative simplification rules apply to covered entities and a health insurance plan, a group health plan is a covered entity. In other words, CMS looks at that thing as if you were a provider, a hospital, a clinic, a doctor's office, it's the same thing. It produces, it creates, it maintains, sends, stores, protected health information. And so because an employer is responsible for that covered entity plan, They have to comply with HIPAA privacy and security, which has a lot of onerous requirements to make sure that that PHI is being properly maintained, stored, you know, transmitted and so forth.
0: Are you finding that folks are no longer being as as vigilant as they once were about getting BA agreements in place with their downlines?
2: Yes, because I think that requirement was kind of the hot topic a few years ago And now we've kind of moved on to other things and people are not thinking about it as 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 something to review every single year. And so, yes, I believe it's kind of fallen off the radar.
0: Do you recommend that every employer have a HIPAA compliance manual and a HIPAA compliance officer if they're large enough?
2: So I do. It really is based off of whether you're fully insured or self-insured. So if you are fully insured, just very generally speaking, you can be what's called hands-off. And so... This doesn't absolve you of all HIPAA compliance-related requirements, but it does mean that you don't have to comply with the full brunt of HIPAA like a self-insured plan would. So if you're a really small employer that's self-insured, you still have to comply with the full brunt of HIPAA. If you're fully insured and you're even a large employer, then you're going to need to have these policies and procedures in place, but the carrier is really the one who's responsible with complying with HIPAA in that case. So it does matter kind of based on fully insured versus self-insured.
0: Well, I mean, so far we've, we've talked about federal regulations, but we have these 50 little laboratories out there that in some cases each want to do their own thing. I know there's been a lot of action recently around FMLA, state by state by state by state, some unemployment compensation issues and others. How are you handling that with your clients? And how can an advisor who has clients who are multi-sided in multi-states How can they keep track of all of that stuff and advise appropriately?
2: So we do have many, many, many state and city ordinances related to paid leave or extended FMLA leave, whether it's on the state level or the city is actually requiring it. So this can be really difficult for a broker to advise on, especially because it kind of bleeds into the area of employment law and more HR and not so much benefits related. But I think just keeping a pulse on where your clients are located and do they have employees in some of the more uh, progressive states, such as California, Washington, Oregon, New York, New Jersey, and kind of maintaining an eye on those specific states to say, okay, do we have requirements in these states where you might have employees where you need to provide them with specific types of leave or are there additional reporting requirements? For example, in New Jersey, California, they have additional reporting requirements. And so it's best just to kind of read over the articles, especially NAHU puts out a state-specific publication. There are many that publish state-specific publications. So just make sure that you're keeping your eye on it, where your clients are located.
0: So if, if you're a benefit advisor. And you don't want to step in one of these deep puddles. Are you better off having an external service, you know, somebody who does like what you do and just saying, look, you know, we have somebody who specializes in that. We'll connect you and you can ask your questions or to get you on a, a Zoom call with them rather than for the broker to maybe take the chance of saying something incorrect or worse, incomplete.
2: Absolutely. I think that's trying to go at it yourself and kind of use a checklist or a partial checklist is a start, but I think you will miss things and you will not understand the full extent of what this can mean for an employer. So I would highly advise an insurance broker, advisor, work with an outside expert. If you don't have internal expertise and partner with them, bring it to your clients and prospects bring it to them as something where you're not the expert you readily admit that but you're bringing in somebody that is and you focus on the strategy claims costs and you know solutions with related to the health plan itself bring in an expert to help you out with the rest of it
0: so we've got a couple of minutes left and I'm always curious with our guests What do you see? First of all, what are you hearing about new regs that might impact the industry? And what do you see coming down the pike? And what do you think it's going to look like the regulatory environment's going to look like a year from now or two years or three years? Where where are things going and what are the drums telling you?
2: Well, yesterday we had the Supreme Court sort of reject the challenge to the constitutionality of the ACA. And I think that's not a surprise to anybody. And under the current administration, I would very much expect to see sort of making improvements to the ACA, very much keeping it intact, making sure that the regulators are following the letter of the law, enforcing it, having no previous le- no no prior leniency related to the Affordable Care Act. So I see quite a bit of. I don't see any other challenges to it at least that will go anywhere either with Congress or the president himself of course that was he his former boss was the author of that piece of legislation so I don't see anything happening with the affordable care act other than maybe just improvements to it as far as cobra we may see an extension of the subsidies although that's just a guess because based on you know, the importance of COVID and making sure people are covered, that is their main goal with that, with the subsidies was making sure people are covered under health insurance plans. So we may see extensions of that or some sort of, you know, something else related to COBRA. We may see additional special enrollment periods for the exchange, changes, improvements made to the exchange. Those are some of the things that I see related to our world and health insurance.
0: With all of the bizarre employment stuff that went on last year, do you expect that we'll get any guidance prior to the filing period this year on ACA relative to how to still determine if you're an ALE and how to still determine full-time, part-time, et cetera? Because there was so much, I mean, places that had 75, 80 employees were just all of a sudden there were no employees. Do you think we'll get any guidance on that? Do you think they'll just apply the rules as they stand?
2: I don't foresee any changes to the guidance. I think they're pretty clear cut on how you calculate if you're an ALE or not. There is, you know, ample guidance, ample FAQs. Perhaps there could be, but really they're more interested in how the employee is treated rather than so much than the employer themselves. I think they expect employers to comply, especially with mental health parity. That's going to be something that we see amped up enforcement. So in the absence of any guidance, I wouldn't expect it. I would just continue as is and make sure that you're complying to the best of your ability.
0: And that's a great place to end our conversation today. Sarah Borders, co-founder and principal consultant at Benefits Compliance Solutions. Sarah, thanks so much for sharing your expertise with our audience. We hope you'll come back as new regulations come out. You can pretty much count on that.
1: Thank you so much, David, for having me today. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Shift Shaper Strategies and may not be reproduced or quoted in whole or in part without our express written permission. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved.